This morning I'm excited not just because of the new members, but I'm also excited because this morning we are continuing our series, Rejoice. And the reason why we've named this series Rejoice is because we are celebrating the Advent season. And what we're doing in this series is we are actually, we are going through people in the, the Christmas story who on the surface had no reason to rejoice, but because of the gospel they found a reason to rejoice. And so that's why the name of the series is Rejoice. And this morning, our passage comes from Luke chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 8 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them, and we are going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew rack back there. And also, uh, well, I don't know if that's a pew rack. That's a rack. And, uh, but there's, it's back there. And if you, if you don't really want to do that, the, the passages are going to be on the screen behind me. Okay, so Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to be looking at the story of the shepherds, the story of the shepherds. And here's what's cool about this story. As I studied it this week, what I discovered is, is, is there are three headings which we can look at this passage under. Um, and, and, and these headings are actually three reasons. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at there are three reasons why in light of the Christmas story, there are three reasons why in light of the gospel we can rejoice. So this morning, I don't know what you're going through, right? You can be going through a bad time, a good time. You can be uh, uh, struggling financially, relationally, spiritually, emotionally. I don't, I don't really know what you're going through, but what I do know is that because of the gospel, we all have a reason to rejoice. And according to this passage, there are three reasons why we can all rejoice. The first reason why we can rejoice this season is because the gospel is for unexpected people. The gospel is for unexpected people. The second reason why we can rejoice this morning is because the gospel is brought to us by an unexpected person. And the third reason is because the gospel makes us an unexpected promise, okay? So regardless of what you're going through this morning, we all have three reasons to rejoice this season. It's because the gospel is for unexpected people. It was brought to us by an unexpected person, and this gospel makes an unexpected promise. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at each one of these reasons, so the first reason why we should rejoice this morning is because the gospel is for unexpected people. Where do I get that? Well, if you look at verse 8, look what it says in verse 8. It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And they were terrified. So listen, the first reason why you and I should be rejoicing this morning is because the gospel is for unexpected people. How do I know that? Well, the reason I know that is because according to the story, the people group that God decides to show up to are the shepherds. He doesn't show up to kings. He doesn't show up to nobles. He doesn't show up to priests. He doesn't show up to Pharisees. He shows up to the shepherds. Now for us, that doesn't really mean anything, right? They're shepherds. When we think of shepherds, we think of cute little figurines that we put on our mantle during Christmas. We think of, you know, uh, uh, these, 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 these lights, these, these little... Uh, uh, um, statues that we put outside to celebrate Christmas, right? So when we think of shepherds, we think of these, this cute little guy with a, with a staff, right? But the reality is, is that back then, shepherds were not considered good people. As a matter of fact, shepherds were the lowest of the low. I would go as far as to say, according to scholars, that shepherds, the only people who were lower than shepherds in that day were lepers, lepers. So not leopards like the leopards that you see at the, at the Brookfield Zoo, like the lepers, the, the guys with the skin disease, that their skin goes all white. The people who every time they were within earshot of someone, they had to yell unclean because they couldn't be around anyone. So the only people who were lower in the society than the shepherds were the lepers. That shows you how bad this situation is, okay? So let me, let me, give, you, let me give you an idea of what, of what shepherds were looked at, looked like, looked at as. 
One of the things that was true of shepherds is that they were actually not allowed to testify in court. And the reason why is because people considered shepherds to be um, disingenuous, to be, to be shifty, to be shady. And the reason why is because a lot of them actually were shady. Because what they would do is they would actually steal sheep from each other. You see, the problem with sheep is that they all look alike. So if my sheep come by your sheep, I can steal one of your sheep and say it's mine, right? And that's what a lot of shepherds did. And so they were just really shifty, shifty guys. They just didn't have a lot of integrity. And so people weren't too fond of them. The other thing that was wrong with shepherds is that many of them were unskilled and uneducated. So shepherding is what you did when you had no other career options. That's what a shepherd did, okay? It was such an easy job, in fact. It required such little skill that many children were shepherds. That's what King David was doing when when Samuel found him. Many children were shepherds because it was such an easy thing to do. You just hit the sheep with a stick and keep them around you, right? But the thing that most hurt shepherds in this day, I think the thing that most... uh, uh, placed them in the category that they were in was the fact that shepherds, all shepherds, were considered ceremonially unclean. And the reason why is because as a shepherd, your job was 24-7. You never took a break. The problem with not taking a break nowadays with workaholism, we're used to that. But back then in the Jewish calendar, the, the Sabbath was a very important day. A Sabbath was a day that you were supposed to stop and not do anything. But the problem with a shepherd is because of the line of work they were in, you can't just leave sheep for a day. You can't take a day off when you're watching sheep because sheep are dumb and they're going to walk off a cliff or something, right? So because they couldn't take a day off, they couldn't, they couldn't celebrate the Sabbath. And because they couldn't observe the Sabbath, they couldn't go to the temple. And because they couldn't go to the temple, they couldn't make sacrifices for their sin. And as a result, they were considered unclean. And so that's the problem with the shepherds. The shepherds were very unexpected, very unlikely recipients of the good news. They were totally unlikely. And that's how you know that the gospel, that, this, this, that Christianity isn't man-made. Because if, if, if this was a man-made religion, you would go to the kings. You would go to the nobles. You would go to the priests. You would go with the, to the people with influence. But the story says that they go to the shepherds. The highest being in heaven goes to the lowest people on earth. That's the gospel. And so... The first reason why we should be rejoicing this morning, regardless of our circumstances, is because the gospel is for unexpected people. And you know what's crazy? The same thing that's true then is still true now. The gospel to this day is still for unexpected people. The gospel is still for a very unexpected people group. Now, here's the thing. Whenever you bring up, uh, 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 whenever you're preaching in a room like this, right, there tends to be two groups of people, right? There are the people who, who know Jesus, and they maybe have walked with him for a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, however long. There's the people who know Jesus, and then there's the people who, who don't know Jesus. Now, now, not everyone falls in this category, but by and large, one of the things that people who know Jesus struggle with is they struggle with entitlement. They struggle with pride. They struggle with moralism. And so one of the things that happens if you walk with Jesus long enough if you, is you actually start thinking that the reason why Jesus saved you was because you earned it and you did something to get it. And so what happens is as you start becoming like Jesus, you actually start replacing Jesus in your life and you start looking down on people who don't know Jesus yet. So you think you're better than your relatives and you think you're better than your neighbors and you think you're better than this person and that person because you have Jesus and they don't have Jesus, right? So that's the first group. I'll get back to those people in a second. Now, the second group are the people who don't know Jesus. And the people over here, part of the reason why they haven't taken a step towards Jesus is because they're scared that they are not good enough for Jesus. They're not good enough for him. They've done too much. They've been too many places. They've said too much. 
They not only have they done things, but things have been done to them, and they feel like they're just too far gone. And so in their mind, they think, okay, even if I do give Jesus a chance one day, I got to clean myself up. I got to do a whole bunch of stuff because there's no way I'm going to just walk into God's presence like that. I got to get my act together before I give Jesus a chance. And so those are the two groups. There's the people who know Jesus and think they earned it, and there's the people who, who don't know Jesus because they think they have to earn it. Okay? But since the gospel is for unexpected people, I want to read you a passage from 1 Corinthians. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians, verse 26. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Now, now pause there for a second. The people who already know Jesus, we like to glorify the past. Like, we like to romanticize the past. I'm like, oh, I wasn't that bad. Yeah, Jesus showed up, but I didn't really need him. I just kind of needed, a, you know, a co-pilot. I needed someone to come alongside and just give me some advice, help me break some bad habits. But overall, I was a pretty good person. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, not many of you were wise by human standards. You were dumb. Not many were influential. You had no influence. And not many were of noble birth. Then he says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And then he says, God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And look how he finishes. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So no, 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 listen, don't, don't miss this, don't miss this. Here's what this means. For the people who are up here and you've known Jesus and you're tempted to be prideful because you think you did something, what this passage does is it humbles you out of pride. And then for the people over here who don't think they're good enough for Jesus, it, it, it encourages you out of despair and discouragement because the reality is, is that we didn't do anything to get it. And because we didn't do anything to get it, we can't do anything to lose it. And so if you're over here and you think you've done anything and you think you're superior to your spouse or to your neighbor or to a family member because you have Jesus, then what it means is you don't know the gospel because the, the reason why you're a Christian is because you're a fool, because you're dumb, because you're weak, because you're a nobody. That's actually what you have to admit in order to get in the first place. So if you're doing anything other than proclaiming that, then you have forgotten the gospel. And then for the people who are sitting here and you don't really, you're scared about Christianity because you're like, ah, man, I'm not good enough. Oh, I've done too much. Oh, I, I've, I've been to too many places. You, you, you just, you, I'm too far gone. Jesus can't, can't save me. To that person, what I'm saying is actually the fact that you think you're not good enough for Jesus makes you closer to Jesus than the person who thinks they are good enough for Jesus. Because when Jesus shows up, he says, I came to heal those who know they are sick, not those who think they are healthy. So he doesn't say that there's actually healthy people. There's no such thing as a healthy person. He says, I didn't come to heal those who think they're healthy. I came to heal those who know they are sick. And so if you know you are sick, you're actually closer to Jesus than most. See, the person who thinks they're healthy, they're two steps away from him. The person who knows they're sick is only one step away. Because now that you know that you're sick, there's only one physician. There's only one antidote. There's only one solution. That solution is Jesus. And so the, the reason why this is so important that the gospel is for unexpected people is because it humbles the prideful people who think they've earned it. And it, it values and it encourages the, 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 the despaired and the de depressed people who think they have to earn it. The gospel is for unexpected people. Listen, this week, I had the opportunity to go to Bartlett High School. And Bartlett High School, for those of you who know, is where I went to high school. And so we have uh, two girls here who go to our church, Samantha and Maggie Martino, and they go to Bartlett High School now. And so last year, they invited me, and I was able to go back to Bartlett and share my testimony. And it was cool because when I was in high school, I wasn't a Christian. 
And so to be able to go back to the school that I did, every, all I did was advance my own kingdom, and to be able to go back and advance God's kingdom, it was a really cool opportunity. So this year, they invited me back. But instead of teaching or giving my testimony, what they asked me to do instead is to do like this question and answer with the students. So when I got there, it was a pretty good group, but most of them were Christians. And so I thought, okay, it's just going to be a question and answer with Christians. But about like five minutes into the, maybe five, ten minutes into the meeting, this, this, this kid walks in. And you could tell with like the demeanor with which he walks in, he's there to ruin the meeting. Like he's not there to like, hey, let's, let's talk about Jesus. This guy's here to, to, to throw a wrench in the whole thing, right? And so right away, he just starts asking questions, asking questions. And for the next hour and a half, it's just me and this guy going at it in front of everybody. And I loved it. I loved that he even came with those questions. And at the end of it, he actually told me, he's like, I'm not going to lie to you. I came to like ruin this whole thing. Like I came to advance my, my cause and my, my, my thinking. And he's like, and you've completely swayed me, he said at the end. Okay. But here's what's interesting. You know the thing that most bothered him about everything I said that day? The thing that he most pushed back is that I said, in order for you to, to know Jesus, the ultimate somebody, you have to admit you're a nobody. That bothered him so much. He's like, why? Why? That's not good for your self-esteem. That's not good. Why do I have to admit I'm a nobody? Why do I have to admit I'm a sinner? Why do I have to admit? He, he, that's this part that the gospel is for unexpected people. It was the part that most bothered him. He, he couldn't get over it. Because in America, it's all about your, your self-esteem and what you can do and, and, and go get them, right? And so it bothered him so much that he had to admit he was a sinner, that he had to admit he was a nobody in order to get Jesus the ultimate somebody. He couldn't get over it. He couldn't get over it. And that's why the gospel is so different. The gospel is for unexpected people. Listen, if you're here and you know Jesus, it's because you're weak, it's because you're foolish, and it's because you've admitted it. Don't forget that. You're not better than your neighbor. You're not better than your spouse. You're not better than your relatives. You're not better than anybody. To get in, you had to admit that you're not better than anybody. That's the whole premise of the the gospel. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't think you're good enough for Jesus, you're not. That's the whole point. Because if you were good enough for Jesus, he wouldn't have to die for you. That's why he's your savior, not just an example. If you were enough for Jesus, he would be an example. He's not an example as much as he is a savior. Okay? So the first truth that we see here in this passage that I think is just so important for us if we're going to understand this, this, this gospel, the first reason why we can rejoice is because the gospel is for unexpected people. Listen, if the shepherds can get in, then anybody can get in. That's the first reason why we should be rejoicing. Now, the second reason why we should be rejoicing in light of this passage is not just because the gospel is for unexpected people, but because the gospel is brought to us by an unexpected person, by an unexpected person. Look what it says in verse 10. In verse 10 says, but the angel said to them, he's talking to the shepherds, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, cloths and lying in a manger. Listen, the second reason why you and I should rejoice in spite of our circumstances, in spite of our situation, in spite of how we're doing relationally, financially, mentally, emotionally, is because the gospel was brought to us by a very unexpected person. A very unexpected person. Nobody expected what showed up that day in Bethlehem. Nobody expected that. Okay? 
Now, now here's why. The reason why nobody expected baby Jesus is because when, 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 people, when people, the Jews, the people who were, who, were, who were in the Old Testament going into the New Testament, what they were expecting more than anything else was a political deliverer. They thought that their biggest problem was Rome, and so what they wanted was someone to show up and dethrone Caesar, get Caesar out of the way so that we Jews can finally have our own nation. And actually, many Jews still believe the same thing. What they actually think now instead of, of, of Rome, it's, it's, it's Islam, and Jews believe that what, what, what this Redeemer is going to do is he's going to show up, he's going to overthrow the governments that are oppressing them, and he's going to lead them politically. They think what their biggest problem is, they think their biggest problem is political. The problem is, is that that's not their biggest problem. That's not our biggest problem. And you know it's not our biggest problem because when Jesus walks into, in, 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 the, in the Palm Sunday, when Jesus walks into Jerusalem on a donkey, he's going in and, and they think that he's going to go to the Roman garrison, which is where the bad guys are. He goes to the temple and starts flipping stuff around. Why? Because he knew that their problem wasn't political. Their problem was spiritual. That's why he was totally unexpected because they thought their problem was outside of them. He shows up and says, no, no, your problem is inside of you. You are the worst problem you have. That's why he's totally unexpected. No one sees him coming because no one was willing to admit they needed a savior. So he shows up and then they're expecting royalty and he shows up in poverty. Think about how poor Jesus' parents were. Jesus, Joseph and Mary were so poor that when they go back to Bethlehem, the city that David was from, he did not have enough money or relational clout to get a hotel room. That's how poor they were relationally and uh, monetarily. And then later on, when they go to the temple, they offer two birds, which was the cheapest, most, most affordable way to go to the temple because they were too poor to do anything else. They were too poor to offer anything else. And so they're expecting royalty, and Jesus shows up in poverty. They're expecting king's robes, and he shows up in swaddling cloths. They're expecting him to show up in a palace, and he shows up in a manger. And listen, don't, don't get it confused. The manger isn't a bunch of smiling cows and horses and stuff like, mm, there's baby Jesus, right? That's not a manger. I hate the fact that we try to romanticize this story. He was in a feeding trough where the, where the animals eat out of. He was in a wooden feeding trough. That's like, that's like having a baby in your garage in a wheelbarrow. Don't romanticize this. The animals weren't smiling. It didn't smell good. The whole premise is to show you that he went from the highest place to the lowest place. That's the point of the gospel. It wasn't cute. He wasn't glowing. He didn't have a halo. Okay? That's what the point is. Don't, don't romanticize this. He didn't come in royalty. He came in poverty. He didn't come in robes. He came in a swatting cloth. He didn't show up in a palace. He showed up in a manger. And he shows up and completely destroys every single paradigm they had. He shatters them. He shatters every single paradigm. And then it says that he is Christ. He is Lord. He is um, uh, the Savior. And then he's the son of David. So he takes all these things that all these Jews are waiting for, and then it combines them. He starts combining them. He's, he's the, the epitome of every single thing they were waiting for. Totally unexpected person. Nobody saw this coming. You know what's so interesting, and we're going to talk about this title in a second, but one of the things that says that Jesus is the Savior, one of the things that archaeologists have found after excavating there in that area during the time of Jesus, what they've discovered is that one of the ways in which Caesar Augustus, who's mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, one of the ways Caesar Augustus described himself was as the Savior of the world. So this Caesar described himself as a savior of the world. He was in the palace with robes on. Jesus was, was, was a baby in a manger with swaddling clothes on. The real savior of the world wasn't in a palace. He was in a manger. That's totally unexpected. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw that coming. 
Now, the reason why that, that's good news for us, the reason why the gospel being brought to us by an unexpected person is good news for you and for me is because it's still the case today. To this day, Jesus, he shows up, and just like he was unexpected back then, he's still unexpected today. He's still unexpected today. And if you look at this story and it doesn't cap you off guard and it's not unexpected to you, it's because you're really not looking at what he's saying. You've, you've heard the story so much that you've lost sight of how unexpected, how ridiculous, how out of left field this whole thing is. Okay? So let me try to unpack for you why Jesus is just as unexpected today as he was back then. One of the titles that he's given, if you go to what the angels say, the angels show up, right, in verse 10. It says, do not be afraid. It says, I bring you good news that, you, that will cause great joy for all the people. And then it says, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Now, we can easily read past that because we know Jesus is the Savior. Of course, he's the Savior, right? But, but you don't, don't miss this. The word Savior means deliverer. It means a rescuer. So, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. One of the ways that you can tell what your problem is is by seeing what people offer you as a solution. So if you want to know what your problem is, look at what people offer you as a solution, and then you'll figure out what your problem is. So, so if someone offers you gum, it means that your breath stinks, okay? Right? If someone buys you body soap, it means you smell like booty, okay? If during Christmas you open up the present and it's how to lose weight for dummies, they're trying to tell you something, Okay? So, the, so one of the ways you can tell what your problem is is by seeing what people offer as a solution. And the fact that God offers a Savior as a solution, what that tells us is that our problem is not unfulfillment. Our problem is not that we're bored. Our problem is not that we need self-help. Our problem is that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. The fact that he sends a Savior reveals what our problem is. And what our problem is is that we are sinners who need a Savior. Don't, don't miss that. Don't miss that. Okay? We're not, we, don't, we don't need a new president. We don't need uh, uh, more self-help. We don't need a life coach. We don't need any of that. We need a, a savior. Why? Because our, because our biggest problem is sin. The fact that God offers a savior reveals that our biggest problem is sin. Okay? Now, I want to read you a quote. This is from uh, Charles Sell. Here's what he says in a devotional. He says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. Then he says, but our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a savior. Listen, your greatest need during this Christmas season is not more money, is not a higher credit card limit, is not a better Christmas meal, is not a better marriage. What you need this morning in this season is a savior because your biggest problem is sin and your biggest need is forgiveness. That's why God sends a savior for you and for me. But that's not the only thing the pastor says about Jesus. It says that not only is he a savior, but listen to this, listen to this. I, this is, this is mind-blowing to me. God's word is just so beautiful to me. And, and you could just miss it. Like, he, he says so much in just one phrase. So on the one hand, he says that this king is the Lord. But then on the other hand, he says that this king is born. Now, now, here's why this is important. And this is why this is such an unexpected person, even today, okay? Because the word Lord, if, for those of you who were here last week, when we were looking at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, what we discovered is that the word Lord in Greek is the transliterated version of the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. So the word Lord means God, okay? So, so what we're saying is, is that he's 
100% God. But then, in the same sentence, he says he was born. No Jew would have ever expected that. Yahweh, the, on top of the mountain uh, um, um, fire in brimstone, Yahweh shows up as a baby. He was born. So not only is he 100% God because he's Lord, but he's also 100% man because he's born. He's both. So here's what this means. Here's what this means. If Jesus is Lord, listen to this. If Jesus is Lord, that means you're not. If he's in control, that means you're not. You see, this is actually the attribute of Jesus that people most struggle with. See, when I pray for Jesus, when I pray for people and I'm, and I'm praying for them to receive Jesus and I have them repeat after me, I always mention, not only do I accept you as Savior, but I accept you as Lord. You see, because everyone loves Jesus as Savior because everyone wants eternity, right? But when you accept Jesus as Lord, he's not just changing your afterlife, he's changing your Tuesday. No one wants Jesus to touch their Tuesday. Jesus, you have my Sundays, that's enough. No, 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 Jesus is Lord. And so if Jesus is Lord, that means you are not. And if Jesus is Lord, that means you're his slave. And you're like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean slave? Well, what it says in Romans is that before we came to Jesus, we were slaves to sin. And now in Jesus, we are slaves to righteousness. So either way, you're a slave. Whether you know Jesus or you know Jesus, you have, you're a slave. It's just depending on who your taskmaster is. But you have, a, you, you have an owner. Like, oh, I'm free. No, 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 you're not. You are a slave to sin. You are a slave to sin. And when you become a Christian, you become a slave to righteousness. He's Lord, you're not. He's in control, you're not. If he really is Lord, that means you don't have control. And you can't just pick and choose what part of Jesus you want. If you want him as Savior, you have to accept him as Lord. They both go hand in hand. But here's the other thing. He's not only Lord, right, but we said he's born, so he's human. Here's why this is so important. Because he's born and because he's human, here's what it means. It doesn't matter what you're tempted with. It doesn't matter what you've gone, with, gone through. It doesn't matter what fears or anxieties or issues you've gone through. Jesus can relate to everything you've ever gone through. That's what it says in Hebrews, that we have a sympathetic high priest who's gone through everything we go through, but yet without sin. Because he was born, so on the one hand, because he's Lord, we have to worship him. But because he's, but the other, uh, because he's Lord, we have to worship him. But because he's born, we get to walk with him. And he understands us. We're not praying to a God that's removed from us, but we're praying to a God who understands us, who can relate to us. I don't care what you're going through this morning, Jesus can relate to it. That's beautiful. That's an incredible promise that's made to us there. So he's Savior, he's born, he's Lord, and then it says he is the Messiah. Now, the reason why that title is so important is because in the Old Testament, the word Messiah, it meant anointed one. Now, back in the Old Testament, there was only three groups of people that were anointed. The prophets, the priests, and the king. So if you became a prophet, you were anointed. If you became a priest, you were anointed. If you became a king, you were anointed. Those were the only three groups of people that were anointed in the Old Testament. But almost always, those people were separate people. It was, you never, only in Melchizedek do you have someone who is both a prophet and a priest. But even him, sorry, a priest and a king. But even he wasn't a prophet. So almost always, the prophets, once you were anointed as a prophet, you stayed as a prophet. Once you were anointed as a king, you stayed as a king. And once you were anointed as a priest, you stayed as a priest. Jesus shows up, and he's all three. He's the ultimate king. He's the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate priest. And so Jesus shows up, and he says, look, up to this point, there's been many prophets that God has sent, but there's never been a prophet that gives you the ultimate final word of God. Now there is. There had never been a priest who can go into the, to the, to the Holy of Holies and sacrifice, uh, make a sacrifice that would be accepted forever. Now there was, Right? There could never be a king who can rule uh, with peace and justice, not just the world, but your, uh, the, on the seat of your heart. 
and now there was. Jesus was the fulfillment. He was the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. And that's why Jesus is so unexpected. Because so often we look for a king over here and we look for a priest over there and we look for a a prophet over there. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 no. All those things are in me because I am the ultimate anointed one. I am the priest. I am the king. I am the prophet that you are looking for. That's why Jesus is so unexpected. He's just as unexpected back then as he was, as he is today. Okay? So, Let's, let's, let's work through this list. The first reason, okay, the first reason why you and I should be rejoicing this morning, if you could put those three reasons up, is because the gospel is for unexpected people. The second reason why you and I should be rejoicing this morning is because the gospel is brought to us by an unexpected person. And then lastly, the third and final reason why you and I should be rejoicing this morning, in spite of our circumstances, in spite of our situation, is because the gospel makes us an unexpected promise. Let me go ahead and read again. Just, this is amazing, just the way the promise is laid out for us. If you go back to verse 10, it says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace, salvation, peace is what he's talking about there. On earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Verse 16, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, it says, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. Verse 18, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Listen, the third and final reason why you and I can rejoice this Christmas season is because the gospel makes us an unexpected promise. The gospel makes us an unexpected promise. Now, if you go back to, I think it's verse 10. In verse 10, look look, look what it says here. It says, do not be afraid. Right? Then it says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy. And there's a word that you can actually read right past if you're not paying attention. It will cause great joy for all people. So this gospel isn't just for the Jews. This gospel isn't just for the Gentiles. It isn't just for the blacks. It isn't just for the whites. It isn't just for the Hispanics. This gospel, or for the rich or the poor, this gospel is for all people. And you know what the word all means in Greek? It means all. Really deep, I know. For all people. It's for all people. You see, one of the things that it says in Ephesians 2 is that the thing that ultimately tears down the wall of hostility between races and religions is is the gospel. The gospel shows up and completely tears down the wall of hostility. Listen, with all the things that are going on racially in 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 our nation and politically in our nation, one of the things that we try to do when we try to be, become more multi-ethnic or more racial is what we actually do is we actually start worshiping race. So, so the white people elevate the black people, and the black people elevate the Hispanic people, and the Hispanic people elevate the Asian people. And all we do is we worship each other's races like, you're awesome, you're great. You're, no, 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 they're not awesome. They're not great. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't destroy racism by worshiping it. What you actually have to do is you have to put Jesus where he belongs. 
because the gospel is for all people. And to the degree that we worship Jesus, to the degree that we're all advancing his kingdom, you see, the way we try to fix racism is by looking at each other and worshiping one another. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that we need to turn shoulder. Instead of being face to face, we need to be shoulder to shoulder, looking to Jesus, expanding and advancing the same kingdom. And that's how racial uh, reconciliation happens. That's how it's going to happen. As we look to something bigger than us, something greater than us, because the gospel is for all people. So the gospel is unique in that it's one of those messages. It doesn't matter what good news you're preaching. It doesn't matter what good news. I don't care if your good news is, is gluten-free. I don't care if, you're, if your good news is, is, uh, is uh, uh, essential oils. Whatever your good news is, whatever your gospel that you like to preach, your, your good news can only reach a certain demographic, a certain group of people, right? Because I hate essential oils. Like, that's horrible, okay? Um, my wife is like, it's like witchcraft. She uses it so much. Um, but, um, but, but so no matter what your good news is, your message your message will always be limited to a certain group of people. The gospel is unique in that it's for all people. The gospel is for everyone. Every age, every color, every gender, every race, the gospel is for everyone. Okay? So that's, that's the gospel. But here's what's beautiful about this. It says, I bring you good news, right, that will cause great joy for all people. That's what we just looked at. And then it says, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Now, you, again, you could read right past that and not even think about it. But I would argue that those two words are the most important words in the whole passage. Those little two words, to you. Here's why this is so weird, right? I, I know that we, we don't really do this anymore, but back in the day, what people would do is they would put their birth announcements in the newspaper, right? You put a newspaper. Now you do it on Facebook and all that. But, but before, it used to be the newspaper. And one of the things they would say would be like, the name of the child, you know, their weight and their height. And be like, this baby was born to blank. And then it would tell you the name of the parents, right? Because that's what a birth announcement is supposed to say. So if this, was, if this was written the way it was supposed to be written, it would say, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to Mary and to Joseph. Because she's the one that went through labor, hours of labor, not, not anybody else, right? But that's not what the passage says. The passage says that the Savior is born to you, to you, to you, to me. So on the one hand, this gospel is extremely universal, like no message has ever been preached. But on the other hand, it's very, very personal because it has to be accepted by the individual at that level. So it's universal on the one hand and yet personal on the other. The gospel is both. It's to you. So it would literally be like the birth announcements on the newspaper, and then instead of the name of the parents, it's your name there. Actually, Martin Luther, in his commentary on this passage, he says that the only way that Christmas will ever mean anything to you is when you start using personal pronouns. When Jesus doesn't come for others, but he starts coming for you, for me. To the degree that you can use personal pronouns when you are explaining the gospel, to that same degree you will start experiencing the joys of Christmas. That's why Christmas is so important. It doesn't mean anything to you unless it's for you that he did it. Unless it's for me that he did it. It really doesn't mean anything unless you take it to that level. It's got to be at that level. Okay, so on the one hand, the gospel is universal because it's for all people. On the other hand, the gospel is very personal because it's to you. So what I love about that phrase, to you, it's almost like God gives you a really big present. And you know how on presents, the, the, those old school stickers, it would say, from someone to you. So it says, God gives you salvation, and it says, from God to you. Not to the world, to you. That's crazy. That's the promise that we are given if the gospel is true. 
So on the one hand, it's universal. On the other hand, it's very personal. But that's not, that's not, that's not all of it. Then he goes on to say, he says, I will bring you good news, right, that will cause great joy. And then if you go later on, and it's in verse, uh, when he starts talking to the, when, when the angels show up, in verse 13, it says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So here's what's amazing. The angels show up. So, so it's only one angel. So they're already terrified, right? And then all of a sudden, all of heaven opens up, and it's, it says a multitude, which in Greek, it's 10,000, because that's the biggest number in Greek that there was. But the way it's written, it's 10,000s upon 10,000s upon 10,000s. So there could be millions of angels all of a sudden, and they're all doing a show for these few shepherds, okay? But here's what's amazing. That phrase um, um, where he talks about the, uh, let me see, it's over here. It's the company. Suddenly a great company. The word company there means army. It means army. So think about how ironic this is. Think about how ironic the gospel is. The gospel is so ironic that an army is singing a song about peace. And you're like, oh, that's so cute. That's so cute. But here's the thing. Listen, listen. This army that's singing about peace, this army is, is these millions of angels that are worshiping God. Remember, these are the army. These are the soldier angels, and they're singing about peace. These angels were, have the strength of 10 billion atom bombs. And one day, listen, one day, the Bible tells us that those angels aren't going to come singing about peace. They're going to come with Jesus. Jesus is going to be on a white horse before them. He's going to have a tattoo on his leg, and he's going to destroy everybody who doesn't know him. So right now they're singing about peace, and praise God for that, because we didn't even deserve that. They should never, when the heavens opened, they should have come down and killed us right then. But the only reason why they're singing about peace is because the glory of God has showed up. And one day... Those same angels will come back, and they are not going to be singing a song of peace. See, Jesus came in a manger this time. He's coming on a horse the next time. And so if you're sitting here, and the reason why you're not considering Jesus is because you have time. Oh, I'll figure it out. Let me get through this season. There is no time. He's coming back. He's coming back. And you're like, oh, well, if Jesus is so holy, why didn't he destroy all evil the first time? Because if he would have destroyed all evil the first time, we wouldn't be here. He's coming back. Okay? And so he shows up, and, 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 and the, 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 he, he is literally, an, an army is praising and singing about peace. And you know, what, you know what makes me the most sad? That angels who have no benefits from the gospel at all are praising God for the gospel more than we do. And the gospel's for us. So they're in heaven praising God for the gospel, and we're worried about gifts. They're in heaven praising God for the gospel, and we're worried about our Christmas party and who's coming from our family. You know how sad that is? The angels, who it says in Peter that they long to look into salvation because it makes no sense to them. Because the angels, when they sinned, were, they were cast into hell. They didn't get redemption. And so they're like, wait, 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 what's the difference between them and us? Why do they get died for and we get hell? So the angels... Who, aren't any, who don't get any direct benefit from the gospel, long to look into it and praise God for it every single moment of every single day. And the people who are the direct beneficiaries of it are thinking about Christmas dinner. You know how sad that is? That's crazy. So it says that, they're, so, they're, so they're praising, right? So they're singing there, and, and, and so the, the, the army is praising God. But look, look, I don't want you to miss the song they sing. In verse 14, it says, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, 
Peace to those on whom his favor rests. So what they're praising God for, see the, the word favor there, for those of you who were here last week, the word favor there means to be considered. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what God has done. So we are considered. So the word, the word favor represents the word grace. So God's grace, it rests on the people whom he chooses. It's not earned. It's not, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't have to impress anybody. It, it, it's on who his favor rests. And the reason why that should give us great joy, because that's what it says, that this good news should give us great joy. The reason why you should have joy, listen, if you're a Christian here, the reason why you should have joy during this Christmas season is because regardless of how you're doing financially, emotionally, relationally, mentally, it doesn't matter. Because the reason why we should have joy is because God's favor rests on us. And because God's favor has been given to us and we didn't do anything to get that favor, that means we could do nothing to lose that favor. I can't do, to make, I can't do anything to make God love me more. I can't do anything to make God love me less. And so the reason why I should always be rejoicing in spite of my circumstances is because I'm already accepted, already approved of, already loved. God's favor already rests on me. That's the gospel. We need to understand that. If not, you're going to lose sight of Christmas. Instead of praising like the angels, you're going to be worried about your debt. That's why Christmas should allow us to rejoice regardless of our circumstances. You know, and one of the things that can take away our joy, one of the things that can take away our joy is fear. It's fear. And you know where I get that? If you go back to verse 10, look what it says in verse 10. It says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Now think about this, think about this, think about this. The, the shepherds, before the angels show up, they're sitting in darkness. It's pitch black, it's nighttime. It's pitch black. And then, according to the passage, when, when, the, angels, when the angels show up, so, so they're, they're totally content in the darkness, and they don't get as scared until the light shows up. Isn't that such a human thing to do? See, what we do is we, we prefer the security of the darkness over the vulnerability of the light. You see, because this isn't just any light. This is the glory of God. And for those of you who don't know about the glory of God, in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us a lot about the glory of God. The glory of God is first seen in the book of Exodus when, when God shows up in a pillar in, during the day and during the night. And he's taking the people all over the place. And then at one point, when they established the tabernacle, it says in Scripture that the glory of God descends on the, the tabernacle. And it wasn't like a little cloud, like a little puff of smoke. The, the whole night, the whole sky was lit up because of the glory of God coming down, right? And then because of their sin, what we're told in Ezekiel is that at some point, because of Israel's sin, he, Ezekiel sees the vision. No one else sees it. Ezekiel's the only one that sees it. He sees the glory of God leave the temple and go up over the mountain because God had left Israel because of their sin. So the glory of God hasn't been seen for centuries. And then all of a sudden, the glory of God shows up and he shows up to shepherds. He's back. It says that the glory of God shone around them and they were terrified. Why? Because this isn't just any light. This is the glory of God. You see, here's why. One of the things about light, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, he's like, hey, if you want to know if you have rats in your basement, don't walk in making a bunch of noise. Open the door a little bit and just hit the lights and then you'll see all the rats as they walk around, right? The reason why the glory of God scares us so much is because when you stand in front of that kind of light, it exposes you. It reveals all of your, your insecurities, all of your issues, all of your problems. Everything is exposed. So that's why a lot of us, we prefer the security of the darkness than the, the vulnerability of the light. I'd rather stay in the darkness and then I don't get scared until the light shows up. The glory of God is here now because of the gospel. Think about how big that is. It's back. And it's because of the gospel. See, and if you think the glory of God is big because it's shining all over, the glory of God is even more represented in that baby that's in the manger. There's more glory of God in that baby than there is around these shepherds. That's amazing. That's amazing. 
See, but one of the things that takes away our joy, like I was saying before, one of the things that takes away our joy is that we fear. And that's why in verse 10, he has to tell them, do not be afraid. In verse 10, if you could put verse 10 up, it says, it says, do not be afraid because that's what we do. And you know what? In the NIV, I don't really like how the NIV puts it. I don't usually quote the King James, but in the King James, I love how the King James writers put it. Because what they say, it says, fear not, but behold. That's how they put it in the King James. Fear not, but behold. So in other words, what, what the Bible is saying, what the angel is telling them is that, listen, listen the reason why you're fearful is because you're focusing on something smaller than Jesus. That's why you're afraid. That's why he shows up and the, and the King James says, fear not, but behold. The, 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 way, the way we deal with fear is like, you shouldn't fear anymore. Stop being fearful. Stop doing that. No, no, no. That's not how you get over fear. The way you fear not is by changing your vision, by changing the view, and you start beholding the gospel. You start beholding the gospel. You start understanding that everything that you need, everything that you're scared of losing has already been given to you in Jesus, and so you don't have to worry about anything. It's not just, it's a two-step process. You have to fear not, but then the only way you can fear not is by beholding the gospel and seeing Jesus in all of his glory. It's the only way. It's the only way. And so one of the things that takes away our, 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 our gospel joy is fear. But the other thing that takes our fear away is that at the end of the passage, it talks to us about Mary, right? And it says in the passage, look, look I love how this story ends. I don't want you to miss this. It says in verse 18, and it, all who heard it, so all the people who heard the shepherds, it says, all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Listen, the second reason why we don't experience gospel joy is because a lot of us, we're amazed by Jesus. But that's it. See, the reason why there's a but there in the middle of the verse, in verse, he says, all the people were amazed, and then he puts but, so he wants you to see a, a contrast. There's a difference. All the people were amazed, but Mary, and it says, Mary, she pondered and she treasured. She pondered and she treasured. You see, a lot of you, the reason why you're here right now is because you're amazed by Jesus or you want to be amazed by Jesus. Hey, it's Christmas, so I got to be at church because it's Christmas. I just want to be amazed by Jesus again. I just got to check off my church box so I can feel better about myself and go get him again this week. And I'm okay with God for the next few months because I came to church. And we're just amazed by God. We give God Sundays. We're amazed with God on Sundays. And by Wednesday, we've forgotten totally about God. But he says, don't just be amazed by Jesus. Don't just be amazed by the gospel, but ponder the gospel. Treasure the gospel. The word ponder has to do with your thinking. The word uh, treasure has to do with your heart. And so what he's telling us is that we have to interact with the gospel at two levels, with our head and with our heart. At both layers, it has to happen. It has to happen. See, the, the word ponder in the Greek, it means to take something and place it in its appropriate context. And so it means to think deeply about something. It is a mental discipline. That's what word ponder means. It means to, to take something and to place it in its right context. So, so Mary, instead of just being amazed by the gospel, she takes the gospel and she places it in the context of her marriage, in the context of her parenting, in the context of her money, in the context of her future, in the context of her past. She's thinking deeply. It's a thinking that she has to do. She's thinking about the gospel. She's pondering it. She's meditating on it. She's focusing. She's beholding it. Okay? But that's not only that. Not only does she do that at the mental level, but then it says that she treasured the gospel. She treasured. The word treasure, it means to, to, um, be, to cherish something, to be in awe of something. It literally, in the Greek, it means to keep something alive. So it's like a fire that if you don't pay attention to it, it's going to eventually die off. So you got to keep throwing logs in it to keep the fire going. That's what the word treasure means. It's, it's an emotional thing. So she not only deals with it at the mental level, but she deals with it at the emotional level. She lets the gospel affect her thinking and her feeling. 
her head and her heart. That's what we need to do with the gospel. That's what we need to do with the gospel. Ponder it and treasure it. Ponder it and treasure it. Now, the question is this. You know, we've been talking about the gospel all day this morning. This whole message, we've been talking about the gospel. The question is, what is the gospel? In light of this passage, what is the gospel? Let me tell you what the gospel is. The gospel, according to this passage, is that Jesus is the ultimate shepherd and he's the ultimate lamb. Here's what I mean by that. When I, one of the things that blew my mind this week as I was studying the passage is that when I was looking, I, I, I kept bothering me, like, why did God choose shepherds? Like, why did God choose shepherds? Why? Why would it be shepherds that God chooses? And you know why? This is just my opinion on it. But the reason why I think God chooses shepherds is because God wants us to see that Jesus is not just the ultimate shepherd, but he's the ultimate lamb too. He's both. He's the fulfillment of both. Here's why. The reason why Jesus is the ultimate lamb is because according to rabbinic tradition, what the rabbis in those days taught is that any lamb that was found between Jerusalem and Bethlehem was eventually going to be used in the temple for a sacrifice. That's how it worked. So, So if you, most shepherds and their sheep were out in the wilderness, but any shepherds that were between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the reason why they were there is because at some point, the sheep that they were raising up were going to be sacrificed in the temple. So think about this. Think about this. Don't miss this. So so God shows up to these shepherds who are taking care of lambs who are going to be sacrificed. And he says, listen, listen, leave the temporary lambs. I'm going to send you to the permanent lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of all the world. Okay. But not only is he the ultimate lamb, he's also the ultimate shepherd because Jesus in John, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Now think about this. The reason why these shepherds were considered unclean, remember what I said, they could not go to the temple. Because of their job, they were not allowed to go in the temple because they wouldn't observe the Sabbath. So you had shepherds who were never, ever, ever, ever going to ever go into the temple because they weren't allowed. But Jesus is the great shepherd who's not unclean who's fully righteous, who's fully holy, who will go into the temple on our behalf. And you know what I love about Jesus in in, in John when he talks about being the good shepherd? He also describes himself as the door, the the, the door. And you're like, the door? What, What does that even mean? Well, the reason why Jesus describes himself as the door is because back then when you were a shepherd, when you would go to bed at night, you would take all these rocks and you would make a half circle, a really, really big half circle. You would force all your sheep into the circle. And then at the entryway, the door, the shepherd would lay down and the shepherd would be the door. The shepherd would lay down in front of the door and he would keep the sheep from getting out and any predators from getting in. Jesus says, I am the ultimate door. Once you're in, you're never going to be taken from me again. There's nothing to fear anymore. There's nothing to be worried about anymore. You can't get out and nothing can get in. And forget about animal predators. Satan can't get in. The world can't get in. Your sin can't get in. I've protected you. You're mine now. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So Jesus shows up, the ultimate lamb, the ultimate shepherd. And what's amazing, here's the gospel, that even though he's the only person that was allowed to go into God's temple because he was the only shepherd that was not unclean, even though he was the ultimate lamb, the amazing thing about Jesus is that everything that happens to him as a child eventually foreshadows what's going to happen to him as an adult. So as, as, a, as a child, he's sitting there and he's being rejected by the innkeeper, right? The innkeeper's not letting him in. So he's rejected by the innkeeper. But one day he will be rejected by people when they yell crucify him. See, he's sitting here as a child and he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. But one day he's going to be stripped naked and killed on a cross. So he's sitting here and he's being rejected by the nobility and by the rich people and by the the important people. But one day he's going to be rejected by his father. And then the crazy thing is he's sitting here as a baby and he's lying in a wooden trough. But one day he's going to be crucified on a wooden cross. 
That's the gospel. The reason why there's room for us in the end is because Jesus was kicked out. The reason why we're accepted is because Jesus was rejected. To the degree that we understand that, to the degree that, that we lean into it, listen, listen, listen. To the degree that you behold, to the degree that you ponder, to the degree that you treasure the gospel in your heart, to that same degree, fear will dissolve and joy will increase. Let's pray.